Today's today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to follow along, please do so. Now by this we know him, that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we know him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. The certainty of the assurance of salvation. Sounds redundant, doesn't it? Well, let's see what we're talking about here this morning. Uh, the, the gospel, not, excuse me, not the gospel, the epistle, the letter of John, the first letter that he wrote to the churches at about 80 years old, um, he states very clearly the reason for which he is writing. And that's found in the last chapter, in chapter 5 of his uh, letter. I write these things, verse 13, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is a very personal letter. It's an individual letter. He is writing, yes, to the churches, but he is writing to you. He is writing to me individually. I write these things to you, and we need to take this personally, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you, so that I personally will know that you, that I have eternal life. The writer of Hebrews was just as certain of what Christ had done for us, and he expresses it this way, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. As we mentioned a few weeks ago when we were introduced to this letter, we found that John was not only concerned about us knowing who we are in Christ personally, but that we also know who the imposters are. Those who say or perhaps even think they are believers, but are not. About 50 or 60 years ago, there was a man by the name of Fred DeMera. Does that ring a bell, that name? He was known as a great imposter. He made all kinds of claims, falsifying all kinds of documents, forging all kinds of different identities, moving all over the U.S. and Canada, so sure of himself and performing functions in such a manner that, that they tended to confirm all his claims. He never had, was educated beyond high school, and yet he became a university president, chosen by the board because of his formidable educational past all falsified. The United States government hired him as a prison warden because of his training in prison science, police science, and law. He became a dentist, can you imagine, and practiced for a number of years as a dentist. He became a teacher, and they say he was really very good. He just kept he kept one day ahead of the lesson each, uh, each day with his students. He became a Navy surgeon Never having done any surgery in his life, he practiced surgery for a number of years. In fact, his first surgery was to remove a bullet lodged next to the heart of one of the crew, successfully. Kind of one hand on the scalpel and the other hand <laughs> as he turned pages to figure out how to... They didn't have YouTube at the time. He would have used YouTube. 
And what he did throughout his life was so preposterous that they made a movie called The Great Imposter, played by Tony Curtis. In an article that I was reading about this, they concluded by saying he died in 1982, aged only 60 years old, from complications due to diabetes. He was a remarkable man, charming and intelligent, adaptable and compassionate, with a photographic memory and a swift mind to match. Yet he squandered his talents on borrowing lives, and all his accomplishments were overshadowed by the crimes he committed to achieve them. In the end, his life was a tragedy, and the greatest tragedy of all, they write, was that he never saw what the great imposter could have accomplished if he'd had the courage just to be himself. Folks, this goes on in churches all the time. I've seen it in Africa. I've seen it in India. I've seen it here in the States. And so uh, John introduces the question, how do we know who's real? How do we know who's a true Christian? And even more importantly, how do I know that I am? And this brings up a very, very important subject of assurance, the assurance of salvation, actually the certainty of the assurance of salvation. Is it really possible to have full assurance of one's salvation? To really know that you're saved and you're on the way to heaven? Can you really know that? Scripture says yes. And that's why Fanny Crosby wrote the hymn that says, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of heaven divine or glory divine. One author wrote, it's a taste of heaven to know you're saved. It's a taste of hell to think that maybe you're not. Often when people are asked, how do you know you are saved? Quick statements like, well, I, I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I believe in God. I've been baptized. I, I, I'm good. I, I've done all that I need to do. But is that where our salvation lies? Things we've said or things we've done. How do, how do I know? How do you know? Paul says it is so important to be sure. He says examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Do you remember that verse? That's, that's not one that's preached on very often. Failing the test. John, in this epistle that he's writing here, lays out the test by which we are to examine ourselves. That's why I started by saying this is a very personal letter to each one of us. And these tests are pretty sobering. Just believing in God doesn't cut it. What does that even mean? There are all kinds of gods all over the world. What does that mean? There's a, very, a fairly popular sentiment that, that's going around that says, you know, there is only one God, but he manifests himself in all these different ways in the different religions so he can reach everybody. One of the surveys that we looked at a, a couple weeks ago showed that even among evangelicals, 56% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. 56% of evangelicals. And this false 
thought pattern begins to percolate within the body of believers and confusion, and then doubt starts to get in. So John wants to set matters straight and wants us to be absolutely, absolutely assured of our salvation. So let's talk about the assurance for a minute. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we know we're doing it. We experience that. Justification, which we talked about last week, um, is an act of God. So we don't actually experience that. I mean, it happens, but that's what God does. Faith, on the other hand, we experience. We didn't believe, now we believe. We've come to recognize the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've come to understand the gospel, and it awakens in us uh, our, our dead heart to the fact that we are in a sinful condition, and we repent of that sin, we reach out in faith, we embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That, that's faith. Faith is something that we experience. Now, there are three aspects or elements to the assurance of faith in Christ. There's a mental intellectual aspect to it, then there's an emotional response to that, which then should produce action. The first two I'm just going to hit on quickly here because John in this whole epistle deals mostly with the third aspect, one that people often tend to ignore. So first of all, there's the cognitive or intellectual assurance that we have. Now, what does that mean? Well, if I believe the Bible enough to change my view about myself and see myself not as a righteous or even a good person, but as a sinner... And that condemnation and alienation of God is what awaits me. And then I read Scripture which says, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to be called the children of God. If I believe that and I receive Him, then there is an assurance in that faith based on the truth of Scripture. God says it, I believe it, and therefore I am assured that that's so. That's this cognitive assurance that we can have. It's in, it's in our mind because I know the Bible is true. Because I believe it's true, I embrace Christ. He saves me because I've done what He has asked. I've re repented of my sin, and He has become my Savior and Lord. That's what He promises, and I believe it. But sometimes that's not enough. Not for salvation. That's not enough just for us, for our own assurance with all the swirling arguments that go around us with the truth, that there is no truth, Satan is having a heyday trying to make believers doubt. Did God really say? Same old, same old, right? Genesis chapter 3, that's how he started out. And he continues. So there's another way we can be sure of our salvation, and we'll call it the subjective assurance. And that comes by the witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Holy Spirit in us. God knew we were going to have issues. So he sent the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to do what? To teach you all things and to remind you of everything I have said to you, Jesus said. Over in Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 14, Paul also talks about this assurance. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Then here's the subjective part. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
It's subjective in the sense that we sense His presence. We sense a peace and contentment in our heart and in our lives. And right after Jesus said He would send His Holy Spirit to teach and remind us, in the very next verse, almost in the same breath, He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Where does that peace come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit who is living in us. Do you have peace and joy when you come to church on a Sunday morning? Do you have peace and joy when you see your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have peace when you, when you hear the truth being taught or being pre- preached? Or is there agitation, unrest, or even um, upset or, or, or anger? I've seen it in our years in Africa. I've seen it in churches that I've been in. That's a strong indicator of a spiritual issue going on in a person's life if the peace is not there and it needs to be dealt with. So the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children and He gives us that peace and that contentment and that joy. That's a subjective assurance. But then there's a third element that we'll call behavioral assurance. Behavioral assurance. How do our lives portray our faith? Because we can see how we actually live out our lives. And if we can see how we live out our lives, everybody else can see how we live out our lives. In a sense, it starts in the mind and moves to the emotions and the senses and then should be going out into our life. All three of those contribute to that full, that full assurance that John is talking about. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's that behavioral aspect. We are no longer living, thinking, and speaking like the world. How? By the renewing of your mind. That's the cognitive aspect. The way we think has been changed, and it affects the way we act. Then Paul says, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the Holy Spirit testifying with our spirit. Isn't that amazing? You see, there's much more to being saved than just praying the prayer. There has to be a full system reboot (laughs) that takes place. A transformation from the old to the new. A a death to the old self and a new life in Christ being evidenced. And that's what John is dealing with here in this letter as he writes to all those churches around him, Ephesus and beyond. So let's come back to our verses. There in verse 3, he says, We know that we have come to know him. I like that, don't you? I, I, I like to know. I like to be certain about things. We know that we have come to know him. That's a certainty that we can have. How? Well, we know that we have come to know him if we keep most of his commands. Something wrong there? It's not in my Bible. No, if we keep His commands. What's God's standard? We talked about that before. It's holiness. All unrighteousness has to go. Whoever says, I know Him, John continues, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys the Word of God, love for God is truly made complete in them. 
This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That should be our lifestyle. And it should be obvious to others as well as to ourselves. John says this is the objective, the visible proof that we are Christians. It's obedience. Now, there are Christians who have a knee-jerk reaction to that word. They assume we're talking about going back to teaching the Old Testament law and not grace. In fact, in the past, I've been strongly accused of preaching the law and not grace because I talk about the importance of being obedient to God's word. In fact, they went so far as to say that I was preaching a different gospel than what Jesus preached. And they use Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 as a proof text. Listen, therefore, my dear friends, Paul is writing to the Philippians, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according, uh, to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And they said, you see, and I quote, God does the obeying. It's a total misunderstanding of that passage. See, Paul is actually commending the believers in Philippi for their obedience. And it's encouraging them to continue to obey because that shows that they're walking in the Spirit. And if they're walking in the Spirit, it also shows that God is working in them, which then enables Him to use them to fulfill His good purpose. Their obedience was a visible way to know they were saved, and Paul is commending them for that. That's that behavioral test that John is talking about here in chapter 2. Now, in our text this morning here in 1 John 2, he does something very interesting. And we're going to see that the test is stated, the test is applied, and the test is exemplified. Now, it's stated in verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. This is getting us to the heart of his whole letter, the purpose for which he is writing. At the close of this letter, chapter 5, verse 13, again, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his whole purpose for this whole letter. I want you to know that you know, he says. It's not just a a feel-good feeling, something to give you peace of mind. In verse 14, he says, this is the confidence. Again, chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He wants us to have that confidence. It affects how we approach God, with fear and trembling and doubt, or with confidence. It affects how we pray and, 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 uh, and bring our requests to God. Is it with doubt and just kind of hoping that maybe he'll hear, hear this time? Or do we approach him with confidence, knowing he will hear? James writes in chapter 1, verse 6, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. And John doesn't want to be, us to be a part of that. This is the confidence, John says, that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He's saying, I want you to have that confidence that you can go to God with all that's on your heart and know that he'll hear you. The confidence that rises out of the assurance that we know him. And that's why I'm writing what I'm writing, is John's point. And he starts out with saying, we know 
Now, the Greek word here is in the present tense, we continually know. It's not just a one-time thing. We continually know. It means to actually experience or to perceive by experience. We should be living in the assurance of knowing Christ. We know that we have come to know Him. And that second know in that same verse is a different form of Greek. The first was in the present tense, we uh, continually know. The second is in the perfect tense. It looks at a past action with continuing results. So we could translate that, we continue to know that at some point in the past, we came to know Him. We have that assurance. Well, how do we know that we know? John says, if we keep His commands. Simple. Paul, writing to Titus about false teachers and false believers, says in verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. You don't know God until it shows up in how you live, how you speak, and in our attitudes. Paul says they, the ones that were denying Christ by their actions, they are detestable. Those are strong words. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You see, the true knowing changes our conduct. It transforms us from inside out. That is absolutely consistent with what the new covenant teaches. Remember the old covenant was the law, right? That's the Old Testament. The sacrificial system that was in place at the time, but the new covenant was ushered in with Christ. The new covenant is a covenant of salvation. But do you know that the new covenant was actually explained in the Old Testament? In fact, it's in Jeremiah chapter 31, starting with verse 31. Listen to this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Now listen, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. You know how we can tell a new covenant believer? Not just because they made a profession of faith to God verbally. Not just because they did something outwardly like baptism. All, both very good things. But you can tell a person who is truly a new covenant person, who has genuinely been converted, one who has been transformed, who has been saved, because God's law is in them, written on their hearts, and they live accordingly. That's what John is trying to get across to us. It's a people who live by the law of God, not because, listen carefully, not because it's imposed on them from the outside, that's the Old Testament uh, practice of law, but because whatever, because it's planted on the inside and it produces the fruit. Why? Because whatever is in a person's heart controls how they live, right? That's Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. I came across a YouTube clip last, this past week of a self-help motivational speaker by the name of Dr. Wayne Dyer. He's no longer alive. This is a n- number of years ago. And there was no church affiliation. I don't think that he was doing this in a church setting or anything of that sort. But he took an orange and he said that if you squeeze it, only orange juice comes out. And no matter how hard you squeeze it, orange juice comes out. And if I squeeze it even harder, I can't get apple juice to squeeze out. Why? Because that's what's inside of the orange. 
And then he said, and I quote, Now, you extend the metaphor and someone squeezes you. That is, someone says something about you that you don't like, someone behaves towards you in a way you find offensive, and out of you comes anger, hatred, bitterness, tension, fear, anxiety, stress, and immediately you say, the reason that comes, that comes out of me is because of the way he said it, or the way she said that, or because they did that. But the truth is, he goes on to say, the reality is that what comes out is what's inside. If you don't like what it's, what's inside, he says, you can change it. And the only way, folks, that that can truly change is if a transformation, transformation takes place in our heart by the Holy Spirit. That's what John is saying here. If that's the kind of stuff that's coming out of us, we've got a problem We've got a spiritual problem. We've got to, and we've got to do some business with the Lord to take care of that. So let's talk about obedience a minute, because that's such a topic of division in churches, and, and it, it, it shouldn't be. It's a simple statement that John makes, right? We know that we've come to know him if we do his commandments. Interesting enough, that's not the word he, he doesn't use, do. He says, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one word keep makes a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. In the Old Testament, you did the commandments. You worked at it to try to be obedient to all those commands that were laid out. But in the New Testament, we keep his commands because why? Because they're already written on our heart. The Greek word literally means to attend to carefully, take guard, uh, take care of, to guard as if of, of, of something that's precious. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Why? For everything you do flows from it. God has written his laws on our hearts and, are pres- and they are precious and we need to guard them. Guarding also gives the idea that we fight off anything that's contrary to God's Word. Take every thought captive, making them obedient to Christ. That's guarding our hearts. That's keeping His commandments. The word keep is in the present subjunctive verb tense. I'm sorry to be all grammatical here, but it means it's, conti- it's continual. There's a continual sense in which we exercise a guardianship of the commandments because we consider them precious. It's a habitual moment-by-moment, day-by-day safeguarding of the Word, and therefore it's an attitude of the Spirit rather than an act of the letter of the law. It's the Holy Spirit that's working in us. So how do you know you're a Christian? Because there is a consistent, consistent guardianship of what Jesus taught There's a consistent devotion to the mind of Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, but we have the mind of Christ, and that should be evidenced. Do we mess up sometimes? (laughs) Yeah, we do. Do we have to? No. 
But our desire should always be to come back to that place of holiness, come back to that place of righteousness. Our spirit should be so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we will be quick to admit our sin and then to confess us, 1 John 1, 9, right? He then promises to forgive us and bring us, bringing us, and bring us back to that place of purity, to the place of holiness, to that place of righteousness, If we truly love Jesus, if we truly know Jesus, there will be this guardianship, this keeping of His truth and His precepts that causes us to love love it in our hearts and long to manifest it in our lives. That's what John is saying when he says we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Paul tells us that the unsaved are those who are disobedient. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, those who follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's how you can tell. And Peter in 1 Peter 1, 4 refers to the saved, to the believers, to the transformed as, quote, obedient children who do not conform to the evil desires they had when they lived in ignorance. So the test of our assurance is stated... And it's consistent all the way through the New Testament. And the question for us is, where is our relationship with Christ this morning? John wants us to ask those questions personally. We need to be honest with ourselves. Because it's so often very apparent to other people. I've often used the example of a barometer, our lifestyle, our attitudes, our selfishness. Yes, our obedience to Christ or the lack thereof is a very good indicator of where our relationship with Christ is. John is asking, ask, ask, ac, excuse me, actually asking an even harder question, do we have a relationship with Christ if we are regularly disobedient? Are we willing to measure ourselves? It's not something new to John, the aha moment he got when he was 80 years old. Jesus himself said it back in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep, you'll guard my commandments as a precious treasure. That's the test stated. Then we see the test applied here. Back to 1 John chapter 2. It's applied in verse uh, 4 and 5. Again, it's pretty simple. Verse 4 is a negative aspect. Verse 5 is a positive aspect. Whoever says, I know him, verse 4, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. If we're not exhibiting Christ's attitude following his precepts and his directives as to how we should be living our lives and what our attitudes ought to be, John says we're fooling ourselves. We're lying to ourselves and we're trying to lie to others. Can't get much clearer than that, can you? John is very black and white here. We, however, tend to nuance things. We tend to give ourselves and others excuses so that we don't have to call them out. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. Oh, that's just the way I am. Well, it shouldn't be. What does the word transformation mean? 
What does the new nature that we talked about in Colossians mean? John is calling, calling people out. He says, they are liars and the truth is not in them. This is John speaking. They, they can say all they want that they're in the fellowship, chapter 1. They can say all they want that they believe in God, whatever that may mean. But as the saying goes, the proof is in the pudding, right? Jesus is just as strong when he says in Matthew chapter 7, by their fruit you will recognize them. He goes on to say, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. That's exactly what John is saying. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, Jesus said, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them by the way they conduct their lives. You ought to be able to recognize them. That's the process of applying the test of salvation. Are they bearing bad fruit or are they bearing good fruit? What does their life look at? So the bottom line, John is not allowing for any fellowship with God when someone is walking consistently in darkness, which is disobedience and sin. And there's no love. He doesn't even allow for any real knowledge of God. Where there's no love for the precepts of Christ and a heartfelt longing to obey them, simply said, a claim without a life of obedience John says, is a lie. So easy for people to say, I know God. I know Jesus. I know the Lord. People can talk a good game. I'm sure you've run across them. James chapter 2 deals with this. He says, faith without works is what? It's dead. It's dead. Faith without the evidence of a Christ-like life is dead. It doesn't exist. But fortunately, John gives us the positive side of the test being applied as well. And we find that in verse 5. And it's a, it's a great verse. Love this verse. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. Isn't that great? The Greek word here for complete has a sense of being made perfect. The love of, for God is truly perfected in them. John's saying, whoever has that loving, heartfelt obedience that guards the word and longs to obey it, in them the love of God is truly being perfected. It's a person whose love for God has, had, has been perfected, that has been brought to completion. It's the real thing. It's, it's truly been perfected. Remember, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So John is saying, if we are keeping his commandments, that's proof that we truly love him more than ourselves. And isn't that what God wants? He wants us to put him first. He wants to worship him. That's the fruition of the greatest commandment that Jesus gave. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all, all your might, with all your strength, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember what Jesus' statement in Matthew was right after he gave those two commandments? All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, true love for God is not manifested in sentiment or feelings. That could be a part of it, but that's not what it's truly manifested in. It's not manifested in a decision. It's not manifested in some mystical experience that, that uh, you may be feeling at a time. It's, it's manifested in obedience, in a changed and transformed life. And John says the love that obeys has been perfected. That's so cool. So we had the, uh, the, had the test stated to be obedient, 
We've had the test applied. Look at your life. See if you, you are being obedient. And now we come to the third, the test exemplified. And we like examples, right? Show me an example. As somebody that has done that. This is how we know we are in him, John says in verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him, which is the same thing in verse 4, I've come to know him. Same thing in chapter 1, verse 6, we have fellowship with him. He's talking all about the same kind of uh, the truth. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's our example. Must live as Jesus did. The phrase to live in him can be translated to abide in him, to remain in him. Remember John 15, Jesus talks about being the true vine and we are the branches. We're literally drawing life from him. He's the source of our life. It's his life that flows through us. And if you remember from our study in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul tells us to continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. In other words, Abide in Him. Remain in Him. Live in Him. We're not to be like some of those disciples or the, quote, followers of Jesus, the taggers along that we read about in John chapter 6, verse 66. Very interesting number there. From this time, many of His disciples turned back and no longer followed Him. They became antichrists. Paul, uh, John is going to be talking about that a little later. And if you like numbers in Scripture, <laughs> that, that uh, reference is kind of an interesting number, John 6, 6, 6. But if you're truly abiding or living in Christ, John can't be any clearer than he is. We must live as Jesus did. Whew, that's a big take on it. What does that mean? I mean, what does he expect out of me? Christ-likeness, for goodness sake? Well, yeah. This is the term of conduct, our daily life. But what does that really mean? We must live as Jesus did. Have you ever thought about that? How did Jesus live? Jesus' own words tell us in John 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. What is that? That's obedience. Whatever he tells me to do is what I'm going to do. John chapter 8, verse 29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. The command I received from my father. Again, he says, I do what my father tells me. Chapter 4 of John, verse 31, I love the Father, Jesus said, and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Folks, therein lies our example. Live as Jesus lived in full obedience. He was constantly, always, always, always being obedient to his Father. It stems from the complete love of the Father. I love my Father, therefore I obey Love of the Father and His law written on our heart. Our goal is Christ-likeness. So how do you know you are a Christian? How do I know that I'm truly a Christian? What is the assurance of our salvation? We believe the gospel. We understand that we're sinners. 
We have confessed our sins and asked for forgiveness. And from the heart, our deepest longing is to obey the precepts of Christ and to live the way He lived and to walk the way He walked and to talk the way He talked. That, says John, gives us our assurance and the assurance of our salvation to those who are watching us as well. Paul himself said, do as I do. His life was transformed to the point where people could watch him and see his example and see the example of Christ and our lives are supposed to be the same way. And Christ made that all possible at the cross. All possible at the cross. And that brings us to the communion table here this morning. Without this, none of this would be possible. Our salvation would not be possible. And unconditional love would not be possible. The forgiveness of sins would not be possible. I want to read a passage from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 24. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, it's all because of what he did at the cross, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance of faith that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswerving, unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He has promised to be faithful. All, all that assurance, certainty of the assurance of our salvation is because of what Christ did on the cross and what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives.